Nice. That'll teach you to fly in front of Come our faces me, when we start to record. All right, here we go. Are you recording? Yeah. Sweet. I, started, yeah, I literally hit record and then the stupid thing like is Tried flying. to kiss you. Oh my gosh, weird. I want right. to kiss you. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available for download on our website, grove.church. Yeah, so jump in, check it out. You can follow along with us as we progress through this plan. Uh, and as you're doing so, if there's questions that arise uh, in your mind, in your heart, in your in your soul, uh, we would love to take time to answer beautiful. those every week. I know it was very touching. Uh, but we love to take time as much as we can week to week to answer some of those questions that come in. Uh, and so we've actually got a couple at the end of the podcast we'll hit. But uh, the, the way that you can send those questions is simple. One is via email. We all know what an email is. You can tag it to info at grove.church. Make sure you put in the subject line, a let's read the Bible podcast question for Aaron or Evan. Uh, and then you can just shoot that email towards us. We will get those emails and then be able to take time to answer those questions today uh, or in weeks to come. The other way you can do it is direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, Marysville, actually. And we'd love for you to send in those questions uh, that way, too, because we love to take time to answer those questions. So thanks for engaging with us. Yep. This week, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a longer podcast. Um, dun, dun, dun. I guess we don't know that for sure, but it, it definitely it has potential to be. It has the feeling of. This bad boy is going to go for for a little bit, uh, but and we're talking a, about it's a short book, which is funny. Like it's not a very long book. And, no, it's and true. Daniel is the book that we're going to hit. We're going to be talking through the book of Daniel today, uh, and we both got a little bit of thoughts for it. So yeah, it'll it'll be good. So to, we're just going to kind of plow right in. Uh, so as far as resources we're using today, the ESV Study Bible, Reformation Study Bible, Logos Bible Software, and the Essence of the Old Testament, a survey by Ed Henson and Gary Yates, and the Daniel Commentary from the Preaching the Word series. Yes, by well. Rodney Stortz. Rodney Stortz, great name. That's a fun name too. See, I got some stuff that has fun names too. So it's not always Gutierrez or whatever, but Stortz. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Stortz. Appreciate it. I like it. All right. So to introduce the book, we'll get into it just really fast here. Uh, the book of Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel, uh, whose ministry was during the period of exile for the people of Israel. So yep. Daniel is alive when, ba uh, not Babylon, he's alive when Jerusalem falls yeah. and he's taken captive, but his ministry really does not begin until after they're already in Babylon. Yeah. Uh, and it takes place entirely over there. He never returns. Nope. Um, so, or at least, yeah, he, never, he, never, he Daniel himself does not return. So interesting stuff there. There's also a... Uh, it's really not that disputed, I guess, that, well, well, we'll get to that here in a second, but there's a lot of parts of Daniel that are first person and they're not even first person in the sense of in such and such a year, I saw this. It says in such and such a year, I, Daniel, saw, like he's, yeah, right. he's being very clear that like this it's is- me, Daniel. It's me, Daniel. I'm writing this. Uh, so it's an interesting book when it comes to layout because it's one of the few books where you say, um, there's a lot of books where we'll say the first half is about this, the second half is about this. Uh, with Daniel, it actually is perfectly divided in half. So the first yeah. six chapters are narrative. So true. The last six chapters are prophecy. So it's kind of fun how that works out. And there, obviously there's prophecy in the narrative, but you'll, yeah. you'll see when we get there. And they overlap too. Like it's not, there's here's the story of Daniel and then he prophesies. It's actually these prophetic yep. passages are actually exit, happen while he, the narrative portion is taking place. They just are recording them differently. Yep. And the second half is pretty interesting too, because it's the only other book, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, I believe it's the only other book that has apocalyptic prophecy, except for revelation. Um, that's a broad statement. So I'll just say for the sake of, if I'm forgetting something, it's one of the Speaking few books, the, the coming, the return of the Messiah. Yeah. That? The, the end of days, if you will. Um, 
I don't know. I'll say it's one of the few books in yeah. the Old Testament, just a hedge. I think, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of parallel between Revelation and Daniel, for sure. There's mm-hmm. a lot of parallel. You actually see it all, just a little, like one of the side notes is you see Daniel, the prophetic literature, his, his chapter ends, ver- chapter 12 ends with the scroll being sealed and God telling Daniel, don't worry about it. Because Daniel asks, hey, what's that about? And God says, don't worry about it. Enjoy the rest of your life. You'll be fine. This is not coming in your time. It's and a... then you see the scroll pick up in Revelation. So there's a very direct correlation between Revelation and Daniel. And I think it's the only book that has that direct correlation. The uh, <laughs> When you said that, my, my, when you said God says, don't worry about it, my mind went to um, Mickey Mouse being like, it's a surprise tool that'll help us later. <laughs> and oh, just, don't worry about it. <laughs> Musketeers. Anyway. Um, so Daniel, when it, when it comes to dating the book, <clears throat> Daniel is actually one of the most contentious books when it comes to it. And so it's it's really interesting because it, it really does get to this divide between, um, I would say, liberal, um, we'll call them materialistic scholars, I suppose, is a mm-hmm. way of looking at it, uh, and then more uh, basically conservative Christian scholars. And you also have this category of kind of like liberal Christian scholars as well. Um, so... So those two words are very politically. Yeah, I'm charged. not talking politics. So, I'm so talking just, just to provide clarity for our listeners. It's we're not talking like liberal Christians from a political perspective. Right. It's it's a, specific to. Yeah. Sorry. Excuse me. Oh well, yeah, a, a conservative a conservative Christian. Uh, when you say that, it means essentially your your main fallback is the biblical text itself and what does the biblical text say about the book and that's where you land. And then the, a more liberal Christian view would be uh, you're believing in the Bible, but you're not taking most of it. I don't want to say most, you're not taking a good chunk of it literally, yeah. if that makes sense. And then a liberal, I would say materialistic view, and that's not the right word. I can't think of the right word for it, but basically it's like you don't believe the Bible at all. And so you're kind of just... You're coming at it from a, that worldview, yeah. so that's kind of the idea. So, um, if you're so the 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 more liberal scholarship kind of dates it to the Maccabean period, which is that a century or so before the birth of Christ, a little bit before that, um, but it's the intertestamental period. So the, mm-hmm. they would say this is written after Malachi during the during the reign of the Greek Empire, or even some of them say during the Roman Empire. And then if you're the more conservative scholars favoring a date in the late 500s BC, so actually having it being written during the period in which it describes. Uh, So in order to land on a later date, you have to start with the presumption that prophecy is impossible. Um, because that's the whole thing. So the, the and we'll get into the prophecies, but mm-hmm. the reason people date this late is because Daniel has the most mind-blowingly accurate. Yeah, I don't want to say accurate because all prophecy is accurate. It has the most most mind most easily interpreted accurate prophecy. Yeah, I guess you, is see, what we'll you say. see you see the very specific fulfillment right in in some regards to some of the prophetic st- statements that that Daniel makes. Because yeah, so much of the prophecy of the Old Testament, you'll see in the New Testament, Jesus kind of walks people through and he says, this is how I'm fulfilling it. And everyone's like, oh, with this one, you don't need anyone else to say, this is how it's being fulfilled. You can just look at history and instantly, like if you know your history well enough and you're reading the prophecies of Daniel, you're like, oh yeah, this is exactly how it works. Well, we'll say really well, if you know your history really well. Sure. I know my history well enough, but I had, it took some reading. So, and the other thing about it too is crazy because uh, like, and I, I mentioned this, I think it was a couple episodes ago where we we're just kind of sharing like the things that like, what's, what are we reading part two or whatever it was. Um, but I talked specifically about Daniel and Daniel chapter 11, how it's prophetic. It's prophetic in nature because it's, it's, it's spoken in Daniel's time before events occurred, but it's fulfilled in our current timeline of history where we can look and see, man, that those, those are accurate statements of Daniel. Um, 
And and so that that's what is so mind blowing about the book of Daniel is some of the things that he, he prophesies we see have played out, which then gives us validity to that. Right. And the other side too is even Jan- Jesus point blank quotes Daniel as well and affirms the validity and truth of the book of Daniel as well. So there is there is so much to be said about the book of Daniel that it's it's one of those things that's just remarkable um, yep. to read and be through to, to study through. And so to kind of get back to the date for just a little bit here. Because I, I do think it's important that we establish why we believe for sure. that Daniel was written at the time, because that's what, I mean, it's kind of like the main crux of the book, I suppose. I shouldn't say that, but it's, it's yeah, it really helps. So and again, part of it is we're, we're, we're withholding the prophecy portions of the conversation because we're going to get through to that right. at a, at a little bit and just a little bit in the podcast. So so if, if you're holding that this is written by Jews living in Hellenized Israel, which means Israel under the control of the Greek empires, um, there's a bunch of things that just don't check out. Um, and mainly it's that when you read the book of Daniel, it is clearly someone who's intimately familiar with both the customs of Babylon and Persia mm-hmm. at the time. So, and a couple, just to list off a few things of the idea, um, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, or a Abednego story that we get to, I just realized that the N is in the other place than I thought. Anyway, that, we don't need to get into that right now. I was When I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, this whole time. Uh, but he references the basically this idea of trial by ordeal, or in other words, in Babylon, it's custom that if you survive um, your punishment, then you're you're declared innocent. So, and that's kind of what happens in that mm-hmm. story as well. Um, he has a very intimate knowledge of Babylonian gods, which wouldn't make much sense if you're living far beyond that time because the Babylonians are they're gone. Yeah. Uh, the plaster walls of the palace is a really interesting detail that you would have to just kind of make up if you don't really think it's there, but we know that that's true from archaeology, mm-hmm. um, as well as the co-regency of Belshazzar and Nabonidus, uh, which is a fun name to say, but essentially yeah. for years, uh, scholars thought that Belshazzar was a character made up yeah. in the Bible until recently we discovered, I, I should have written down what it was, but it was some type of a document, um, I believe a stone tablet, where it talked about using the actual name Belshazzar was a co-regent with his father, uh, Nabonidus. Yep. So there you go. And then when we get to the Persian areas, he's borrowing words that you would really, you would use them if you were in a Persian court. It's like the idea of satraps. And then as well as he's very aware of the structure of civil law in mm-hmm. Persia and how it works. So all of these things point to, if you're just looking at the text and the internal evidence of the text, this is not pointing to someone who years later really? is writing a work and he's attributing it to someone much earlier. It it very much reads as someone who is in Babylon and in Persia when these things are happening. Yeah. So, and that's why I said the only way that you can really get to a late date of Daniel is if you are starting with the premise, this is impossible. Therefore, we rule out that it could have been written before this date. Um, the other thing is fragments of Daniel are also found in Qumran, yep. uh, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. And so that automatically dates because to, to get to a Maccabean um, timeline of when this was written, what you would have to say is that they were basically written and instantly um, kept in Qumran because it doesn't, because uh, <laughs> and that's just not the way writing works. Like yeah. they circulate for a long time and then they're copied and copied and copied and then they find their place. So you'd have to say these things were written and then they were put there and that's kind of like, that's how you So they weren't it. circulated. They weren't shared. They they were written to be hidden. Or they were instantly sold. circulated at Qumran and then circulated out from there. So, yeah. which is inconsistent with all of the other texts of Qumran. So yeah. there you go. It's true. Fun ideas. 
All right, let's get into the let's get into the story of Daniel. Though, so, long story short, we take the position that it was written uh, in the late 500s or in, in that ballpark of time um, that it is actually relative to the time frame, not later on. Yeah, we we take the position that it was written uh, when the book says it was written is kind of where we'll land on that. Yep. So, all right, and so, Evan and I agree on that. So, boom. <laughs> yeah, we have a few things. It's interesting. We have a few things that we see differently as far as interpretation goes. Um, but we'll we'll get to those here in a little bit, and there's nothing nothing can dear listeners nothing contentious. Don't worry. Oh, this so. is actually our last pat, <laughs> last podcast together. Where I'm, I'm walking out. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So the first story that we get is in Daniel one and two. Uh, we get kind of the introduction to Daniel as well as uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, um, and they all get taken from Israel. They're of the nobility, so these aren't kind of. Um, no, uh, peasants is a weird word yeah, no, to they're, use, but they're, they're they're high up. Yeah, they're wealthy individuals. They they're are educated. They have, yeah, education. They have um, status as well. Yeah, these are these are smart cookies. But yeah, Jerusalem falls, and the king of Babylon wants to take essentially the best of the best yep. from Israel back into his kingdom to have them serve and to serve the kingdom of Babylon. Yep. Is kind of how it's working there. Uh, so they're all from the tribe of Judah. Uh, and they were given new Babylonian names. So Daniel, we don't talk about his Babylonian name very often, nope. which is Belt, uh, Belteshazzar. And then the other three, we know them mostly by their... It's Bab- true. Which is kind of weird because I I actually made uh, a conscious effort in my notes to refer to them by their Jewish names because I feel oh. like that's what they would want. Uh, but Hananiah <laughs> is Shadrach, Mishael is Meshach, and then Azariah is Abednego. Yeah. Um, so just this is just one of those things. I've always said that name as Abednego. Like A B E N D E, but oh, it's, got it's it. a bed nego is yep. how you say it. So I just, you know, I was, when I was reading it today, I was like, oh my gosh, years yeah. of academy training wasted. I've, I've been misplaced. The Can interesting you? thing too, like when they changed their names, part of the reason why the Babylonian uh, kingdom changed their names is because they, they were named, named them in reference to their gods. Um, right. So they, the whole purpose, like part of the purpose of doing that is they, they were trying to get these individuals who they captured to forget all about their religious faith system, forget about all of their, their, their gods and their God. And so they changed their names on purpose to get them to associate with, um, with their gods, with the Babylonian gods, which is even more interesting because then Daniel makes the stand of like, don't feed us, you know, we read this in Daniel, don't feed us the same foods. And there's some things there too. Like they weren't, they were oftentimes food sacrificed to idols. They were typically unclean in the Jewish culture, um, or I guess the Israelite culture. Um, but there is like the whole point of the name change is not just to uh, evoke a new identity, but it's also to cause them to forget their their heritage, right. forget their history. And they refuse this. Yeah, um, which the, is really remarkable. The names they're known by, um, but that's why, I, like, that's why I said, like, I, I, and maybe, like, maybe I'm just like overthinking it, but like, I feel like they would want to be known by the Jewish name still as we talk about them today. Um, but the story you just alluded to is that where they're offered. The best food, and it's, but it's unquote unquote food. the best food. Yeah, and so they're like, nope, we're not doing it. Um, God blesses them in that, and they're actually um, after a period of a hundred days to kind of give it a trial run. I believe yeah. it's a hundred days. Is it? I thought it was like twenty something days. I thought it was I, three weeks. I, I, I honestly that's where we get the Daniel fast from, isn't it? Yeah, I honestly just pulled that, so I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I just said a hundred days, but for a period no, of time, it's no, not I'm my pretty notes. sure it was like three weeks or whatever. I'm, I think that's where we get the Daniel fast of being like typically it's twenty one days or whatever. Okay, but I could be wrong too. So, anyways. The period of period of time isn't that important. But days. They go through. Oh my gosh! I just literally just. Said <laughs> I love it. it. Well, I try to like make sure like I never. Everything uh, he says is factual. Yeah, I try to make sure I I I'm clear when I'm yeah. uh, saying like guessing. But, but anyway. when they did that, when they took the when they ate the food, they were actually shown to be healthier, right. and better looking. Like their 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 countenance was better. Their their skin complexion was better. Their their overall health was better than the other individuals who took the food from idols. So. Yep. 
All right. So after all of this happens, they are elevated. They're kind of like the best of the uh, the Jewish wise men, at least, that mm-hmm. get brought in. So good, good for them. Good deal. Um, so after all of that is going on, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, has a nightmare. Um, so he wakes up, um, and especially at this point, dreams are seen as communication from the gods. Yep. And so he wants the wise men to come in and interpret the dreams. If you remember the story of Joseph, it's something very similar that uh, to that story as well. So Nebuchadnezzar calls in the wise men and the wise men are basically like, oh, king, live forever, which is how they greet the king. Uh, but, you know, so tell us the dream and we will give you the interpretation from the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar just looks at them. He's like, well, no, why don't you tell me the dream? No, you tell me the dream. <laughs> like, no, wait. you do it. Yeah. It's like, like, wait, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I mean, if you guys are such, you know, brilliant wise men, you should be able to tell me if the, if like, if the gods will reveal to you the interpretation, why wouldn't they reveal to you what the dream actually was? And Ooh. the wise men are rightfully like, well, wait, hold on. We can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar just rages. And he's, he's like, he's so mad because he doesn't understand the interpretation. It caused him nightmare. It was right. overwhelming him. So he decided to take out the wrath on the wise men. Yep. So you have this whole idea. He's going to, he's going to kill all the wise men. That's kind of what's going to go down there. So, uh, he's, he's a temperamental King. And we kind of see this, we see this with pretty much all of the Kings of the exilic period. Um, and what I mean by that is all of the Kings that are reigning, uh, during the period in which Israel or the Israelites are not in Israel anymore, but they're in Babylon, they're in Persia. But I think I'm, I'm trying to think of any king besides maybe Darius, who's not just like really temperamental and just ready to kill people at any time. So, but yeah, I can't, I can't think of anybody. And also, cause it makes, it makes my mind jump to uh, Xerxes in the story of Esther as well, yeah. where it's just one of those things. So anywho, so they're going around, they're trying to, um, they're rounding up all of the wise men. They're going to kill them. Uh, and then Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, pray, and they seek God for deliverance in this moment. And then God reveals to Daniel the dream that the king had, as well as the interpretation. Well, but he him. also tells the, the he also tells the soldier who he came and informed him, hey, "We're going to kill you." And he's like, "Okay, give me, give me. I don't remember how many days he said, but he said, give me, give me a day or give me whatever to pray." Right. And he asked his buddies, Shadak and Meshach and Abednego. Um, I'll use them by their Babylonian names, I guess. <laughs> um, he 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 says, "Hey, we need to pray because if not, we're going to die." And, and in that, that's when God then reveals the dream and he rushes to this, this soldier, the guard of the palace or whatever, and says, I, I have the interpretation, bring me before the king. Yep. So all of that, all of that goes down. God reveals, Yahweh reveals to Daniel, uh, the dream and the interpretation. And so we get, um, he, yeah, so he comes to me and basically says, here's your dream. You had a dream of a great statue. It has a gold head. Um, it has a silver chest and arms. It has a bronze uh, waist and thighs, and then has iron mixed with clay for the feet. And then a great stone, which was not cut by human hands, comes down and crushes the statues, essentially the dream. So, and then Daniel kind of launches into this. So, this is Daniel chapter 2, 36 through 44. And he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king of kings, lowercase by the way, uh, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, making a rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So really flattering. Daniel, Daniel starts it off really well. Uh, but then he says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. 
And as you saw, the feet, the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. All right. So this is the first major prophecy that we get in Daniel where like, and this is the, the, this is the big one that people talk about where like, if you know your history, it's pretty interesting uh, because it parallels pretty much exactly to historically what happens. So Daniel's prophesying, he says, the kingdom of Babylon essentially is the golden head. And then you have this next part, which is the kingdom that comes after it. This would be the Medes and the Persians, right? So we, and we get this in Daniel, this, uh, the Medes and the Persians actually take over. Mm-hmm. After this, and this is when we get into the intertestamental period, um, which if you haven't listened to that podcast, listen to that one. We, we did one on the period basically between Malachi and Matthew, where we yeah. get into a lot of this, uh, but the Greek empire takes over. So Alexander the Great, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, just a little guy. Yes. Just, just a guy. Small little blip in history. Uh, but anyways, they they conquer Persia. Mm-hmm. And then after that happens, we get the final empire that kind of rises up and that would be Rome. And it's interesting because it talks about how it's made of iron and it's made of clay. And Rome famously divides into two uh, in about, I forgot what year it is, but it's in the, it's in the late 200s, 80, late 200s. Um, but you have the empire dividing into east and west. And the Western Empire falls within a couple centuries of this happening. But the Eastern Empire falls. And this is what's interesting. We, 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 you don't often think about the Roman Empire lasting until the 1400s, but it does. It's 1450-something that, that the Eastern Roman Empire finally falls. Um, and so it lasts for almost a thousand years longer than, the, I think actually a little bit over a thousand years longer than the Western Roman Empire ends. So it's kind of an interesting thing to look at there. And then it talks about what, while this empire is reigning... Uh, you'll see the uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And this is pretty clearly messianic language as well. And during the time when Rome is ruling is when you have Jesus's ministry happening and he establishes the kingdom of God here on earth. Um, and there's also some speculation that this prophecy could refer to the end of times as well, where um, it's not just the the spiritual kingdom of God that's established, but also the the physical kingdom of God with the new heaven and the new earth that mm-hmm. overthrows all empires as well. So kind of interesting, an interesting point there, uh, but he interprets it well. And then Daniel is well rewarded for his uh, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Yeah. I don't know if you had anything, you look like you have something to say. No, yeah, I'm anticipating, like, I'm anticipating when we shift in a minute. <clears throat> Ooh, when we go to the prophetic parts? No, it's, uh, for me, there's just, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but the the idea that there's multiple Nebuchadnezzars, um, and and I and I never opened up the, pa- the passage of the commentary yet until just now. So, but it is like, the, just, to, just to break it down real quick, like D- Daniel 1, I think, what is it is? Um, and this is coming from the preaching the word commentary that, that I've been I've used and and I've learned a lot a lot. Um, but there's there's a different Nebuchadnezzar in D- Daniel chapters one through three than there is in Daniel four. Since we're getting ready to shift out of three and here in just a minute, spoiler, sorry. Uh, but there's a difference. There's a changing of the guard, so to speak, in in rulers. Um, 
in in the commentary, Rodney Stortz would say that there, he he alludes to a fourth Nebuchadnezzar that is more contemporary uh, in recent years, I guess in the nineties. Um, that was int- really interesting to read. But hmm. anyways, all that to say, there's three different Nebuchadnezzars throughout in the book of Daniel. One came prior to Daniel one. The second, which is his son, came, which is the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel one through three. Then there's a third, quote unquote, Nebuchadnezzar, who's not even a Nebuchadnezzar, but takes the name. Um, so that's just that's just what I have in my hand right now. Yeah, so. all right. Well, we'll we'll get to that here in a second. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Let's move. That's why I'm <laughs> to the fiery furnace, which is also, I mean, one of the. I, it's, it's one. Of, it's one of, the narrative of Daniel is really well known. Yeah, I mean, the story, a lot of if stories. you've grown up in church a lot, or you've watched Veggie Tales a lot, a lot of the Daniel narrative is is pretty well known. The bunny. The bunny. Oh, I, I didn't watch the, it. I just oh, know really? VeggieTales made it. Oh. Made it. In the uh, in the VeggieTales version, they don't <laughs> bow down and worship. Oh, that's right. A they giant, worship a the bunny. That's right. Bunny. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, but <laughs> getting back to the real story. That was here. me distracting with bun- VeggieTales. It's true. All right. So the next chapter of Daniel tells the story of uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego, uh, refusing to worship a golden statue that the king had made. They are thrown into a great furnace to be executed and give one of the great lines before they go in. Uh, I just wanted to read this because I love this part. <laughs> uh, but so in Daniel 3, Verses 15 through 18, it says, now, if you are ready, this is the king uh, talking at the beginning. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, I love that bagpipes are included there. I like to imagine that they're the Celtic version of bagpipes. They're probably not, but they're they're probably close. They're certainly not, but I just like to imagine all of these like Middle Eastern instruments and then just bagpipes (laughs) in the corner. Uh, But anyway... Uh, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Which I think the king probably says this thinking like, that's a great line. And because he, he just looks him in the face. He's like, fine, you want to worship your God? That's fine. I'm throwing you in here and tell me who is this God that's going to rescue you from the from my all-powerful might, which is a, it's a great villain line. The yeah, even absolutely, be- absolutely. The, the even better line comes here where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, which right there is like, that takes stones to yeah, say. Right. Like, to, you're staring down death to the king and you're like, we don't even have to answer you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So essentially what they say is we don't even need to answer you, but God is absolutely able to do it. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to go with what you (laughs) I just love this idea. Like even if we die. We're going to die not worshiping the uh, the statue that you've put down. So, and after that, it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's just, he loses it. So like, you know, like he lost it before wanting to kill all of the wise men. <laughs> he loses it again. And he's like, throw them right on him. Uh, but he notices almost immediately that their bonds break off or burn off, yeah. but they are not being consumed by the fire. They just get up and start walking around. Like they're just... Like it's no big deal. Yeah. They're just getting their steps in. Yep. Uh, And then Nebuchadnezzar says that he sees a fourth man who he describes as looking like the son of the gods uh, or like a son of the gods, Mm -hmm. um, which this would be- Christophany. Almost certainly a Christophany. Almost certainly we're seeing um, a manifestation of Christ Christ in the Old Testament. And not just an angel, quote unquote, but uh, an actual Jesus himself. So after this, uh, he'd bring them out and Nebuchadnezzar would declare the glory of God and he'd promote uh, the three men. And this is kind of what we allude to in the beginning where it's this idea of when you survive your uh, your trial, then you're innocent. And they certainly, and no one expected them to be able to survive this whole thing. And even I left out that detail, but they even talk about how 
it's so hot that one of the men who throws them into the furnace dies from just the heat of being right outside of it. So it's interesting. Uh, this next section is kind of, we'll call it the fall of Babylon. I, I put two narrative sections together because we can't, we can't talk for two hours it's about Daniel. We, well, let's be honest. We could. We could. But for you, dear listener, we, we don't, we don't want to overdo our, extend our time. Exactly. Uh, I, I just will say this, oh. like, it's pretty interesting to me as you're looking and reading the narrative portion of these, of these individuals, of Daniel, of Dan, uh, uh, what, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. Hananiah, thank you. Um, we don't know much about them. We don't know much about their their story. We don't know much about where they came from. We don't know much about their family dynamic, like their family heritage or lineage. But what we get is a glimpse that we can then ascertain that they were strong followers of God. And, and you see that based upon how they respond to um, the, not just the trial, but the, the facing death straight out. I mean, we see it later here in, in a little bit with Daniel when he's in the lion's den, you know, we right. see it with well, spoilers shatter. You know, we see with these three and how they, they have this staunch strength and uh, faith that God is who they serve. God is their provider. God is their protector. God is their, def- like all of these things. Right. Um, and it's, it's remarkable to me to like, you don't see much about their, their primary, even I'll be honest with you. You even don't hear much about them beyond these stories. And one of the things that I thought was so provoking was like Daniel's ministry as a prophet uh, of God was very much low key. There wasn't a lot of flash pomp or circumstance no, to true. his to his 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 leadership, I guess if that's the word to use. Um, but it's just it's remarkable to me to be able to stop. Like, man, we don't know much about these guys, but what we do know is that they were strong in the faith. They stood firm in the conviction of who God is and did not want to bend the knee to anyone else. Um, and I just think that's a really cool and powerful picture um, because we don't always know. Right. Uh, so to go through to our next section here, and this is where we kind of, it's interesting just going off of interpretation. So this is either the same Nebuchadnezzar who has, um, basically he just has a change of heart again and he goes back to kind of doing his own thing. Aaron is shaking his head. No, I'm not. Because, I'm, or, I am shaking my head. Yep. Or it is in fact another Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this would be a, another king that had taken over rule at a certain point and then had built a temple or wanted to build a temple. Well, you can take it away for a little bit here. Yeah. So just, I mean, just a few things. I mean, obviously, like I said, I'm getting this out of um, the preaching the word commentary by Rodney Stortz on the book of Daniel. Um, and there's what he what he reveals is there's three different Nebuchadnezzars in this time period. One is before Daniel was even written, uh, which would be the father of Nebuchadnezzar the second, um, and that Nebuchadnezzar is the Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter one through three. And then it says this. Um, this is I'm going to quote cite my source. It's page sixty three um, in this commentary, um, and he says this picking up from the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter one through three. Uh, he had a couple sons and relatives who reigned after him, evil Merodach in 561 to 560. Uh, I don't even know how to say this name, Nergleiser from 559 to 556 BC, and then Lab- Labashai Marduk 556. The trick is just to say them with confidence. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, and this says this, then a new man entered the scene. He was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar II. His name was Nabonidus, Nabonidus, or how are you? Um, and he overthrew threw King Labashai Marduk. According to Babylon historical documents, he ruled from 559 to 533 BC as the last king of Babylon and was reigning within his kingdom fell to King Darius the Mede, also known as the Persian name of Cyrus. Um, 
And so then the, then the question is, well, why did he call himself Nebuchadnezzar then? And this was really interesting. It, it says it's because he was a usurper and taking the throne away from the family of Nebuchadnezzar. If he wanted the respect of the Babylonian people, he would have to identify himself with their greatest king. So he calls himself Nebuchadnezzar the third or just straight up Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so we see some of the historical documents. It, it's this is a different Nebuchadnezzar who wasn't even part of the Nebuchadnezzar line, but assumed the name just like the just. And I told Evan this, I said, it's just like the name of Caesar. When Caesar was passed on from one person to another, they were not all in the same family line, but they assumed the title because it was what the people respected or understood the authority from that title. So Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He came in and assumed the name after overthrowing the one of the the the, the relatives of Nebuchadnezzar II um, and assumed the name for for political reasons. He wanted right. to gain the favor and respect of the of the Babylonians, and that's why he did it. So, uh, so that's where I land as I'm reading through. I'm like, man, that makes a whole lot of sense in some things and watching how the narrative plays out. So, so you go. So this this king goes onto the walls. He's like, ah, look at this kingdom I've built. It's incredible. And God's like, all right, you're going to have a period where you're just going to be basically an animal. And all of a sudden the guy turns into, I mean, not literally transform in the sense of like he became an animal, but he just acts like a beast yeah. for, I believe it's seven years, right? Yep. Yeah. So crazy. He, his hair grew long like feathers. His nails grew long like talons. He ate the grass like the deer, um, which was the prophetic word that was spoken to him before this ever happened. Um, and shortly after he took the reign of Babylon, he wanted to build the temple in Tema, which is which would become known as Babylon. Um, and he sent his son as a co-regent to stay in the old city of Babylon. Um, and so the, the crazy thing is, I'm probably getting ahead in our, our conversation a bit, uh, but the crazy thing is in that when he went to build the temple, he went to the temple when it's finished, it took four years to build. He stood on top of the temple and said, look what I've done. And immediately the prophetic word of the Lord came fulfilled yeah. and he was cast down in the field and he was gone for seven years. No one heard from him. Even Babylonian records don't know what happened to him until seven years later, he re, he re-showed up on the scene. So there you go. Which is, which is remarkable. So moving to our- Dude, I love this portion. It's, like it's, this part, this it's, part of Daniel is so phenomenal to it's, me. It's hard, with, it's hard with, as we're discussing, because we really do have to like, we have to just kind of quick hit through these things. So we can't like really dwell on the law of these things that we're talking about. Um, so the next thing is at, sometime after this, um, we, we talk about Belshazzar is now the king or at mm -hmm. least a co-regent um with of the old city of babylon yeah with of Nebuchadnezzar. my timeline so there you go <laughs> so uh belshazzar would throw an extravagant party and then in the middle of this a hand would appear um and so it would write things on the wall and belshazzar i mean rightfully is freaked out i mean if we were just talking here and all of a sudden a hand appeared and started writing things on the wall i would also be like this is spooky uh so all this happens and then we get this kind of this last bit of prophecy that Daniel does for the Babylonians spoilers before the, the Persians what? come and take over. But um, I love this. They call for uh, they call for Daniel and it says this in Daniel five twenty four through 30. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson, which is a uh, Hebrew. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, and this is Daniel speaking, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with, a, with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, which is, is also points to that co-regency idea yeah. of there is the king. 
Belshazzar serves as second under him, and then it would be Daniel right after that. And then it says that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. So, and just kind of gives it there. Uh, the line I'm referring to, and it's, I think it's the new, uh, not the new, I think it's the King James version that says, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you've been found wanting, which is just a great way to say it. But anyway, love that line. It was also in The Knight's Tale. Knight's Tale, which is also a great movie. Yes. Um, so yeah, they, they ended at the end and they looked down at the guy and they said, you've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been, you've found, been wanting. found wanting. Anyway, so that happens there. And then we're moving again. We're kind of having to pick up the pace here a little bit. We're going to Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, the final narrative story that we get of Daniel is during the reign of Darius the Mede. Uh, this is possibly either the same character as Cyrus the Persian, known as a different name, or Darius the Mede is an underruler of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and Darius the Mede maybe rules over the region um, of, of which he's there now. So either one is possible. I tend to land on that Darius is an underking to Cyrus, but you can go either way. Uh, Darius would be convi uh, convinced to pass a law that is outlawing prayer. And so Daniel would refuse to follow this. Um, after Darius found out, uh, he's in a much more merciful mood than Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, anytime anyone disobeys his decrees, he's like, either he wants to tear them limb from limb or throw them into a fiery furnace. Um, but when he hears about this, it's interesting. Uh, in Daniel 6, it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he wants to find a way to get Daniel out of this. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. We see this also in Esther, right? Mm -hmm. When Xerxes passes uh, the law, making it legal essentially to kill the Jews on a certain day, he can't do anything to stop it. So Darius the Mede is running into the same problem here. And again, we're talking about how uh, this really points to the idea that Daniel is very aware of specifically Persian custom, because mm -hmm. this is not a thing that necessarily comes up. Um, under Babylonian or Greek rule, but the yeah. Persians have this rule that basically once the king declares something, not even the king can undeclare it. Um, so the king commanded, to, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought in and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, uh, who you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it and his own signet uh, with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went with haste to the den of lions. Then he came to the den where uh, Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from these lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him, because he had trusted in God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel uh, were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives, and they reached the bottom of the den. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. So, oof. There's a picture. Yep. That's... Uh, 
Oh, it reminds me of The Ghost in the Darkness, which is another great oh, movie. Oh, dude, that is a great... I haven't seen that in a long time. Ah, oh, I love that. I just watched it the other yeah. day. It's about lions, guys. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. <laughs> it, has, so it has nothing to do with the Bible, but there's lions in it. Yeah. So there you go. Well, and, I, and I'll say this. I mean, you made the comment before you jumped into the narrative about Darius and Cyrus. Um, again, I, I don't know if I agree with you being Cyrus as a, as a, as a subordinate or whatever king. Right. Um, and partially because, you know, again, some of the research and some of the reading that I've done, um, Darius is the one who conquered. And when he conquered the Medes and the Persians, they, um, he, he gave them equal power almost. So like they, that's why a lot of times in historical, and we see it even in scripture, this idea of the reference to the Medes or the Persians, it was kind of hand in hand because they were two, two tribes merged together. Right. Um, and I, and I always wondered, and this is, again, this again comes from uh, the stuff that I've been reading, but it says, um, Cyrus was the great conqueror of Babylon in 539, uh, but most likely Darius was the conqueror's name among the Medes and Cyrus's name among the Persians. Um, and, and so that's, for me, it's, it, it's, it's, dude, it's just, this book is incredible. So, um, but I, I fall more in the camp that it's the same person, just different names, different names from two different cultures of people, which we see uh, in the new Testament all the time. Yeah, well. for sure. I mean, I have, what I have a Bible that has the name of one of the books was Jacob is James, I think is the book that it's, they put James or Jacob. In yeah. The Jacob parentheses. is James. So um, anyways, all Judas that to say, Judah, we see that, that per portion as well. And, and th this is part of the reason why Daniel is such a. A phenomenal book because it, it's so specific to the names that it, it was written before these things that actually happened and played out. Yeah. Um, so, anyways. All right. So now we're gonna have to we're gonna have to really do some rapid fire With through the the four prophetic. the we, four great visions of Daniel. Um. <laughs> well, we won't go super rapid fire, but we we gotta. <laughs> we're at forty minutes right now, so forty one minutes. Evan Evan's always concerned about time. I am. All right. Here we go. Maybe you, our dear listeners, don't mind it when we go a little bit long, because this will be one of those weeks. All right. First vision, the four beasts. Uh, the first vision is listed, uh, listed is dated as the first year of Belshazzar, so the tail end of Babylon. Daniel sees four great beasts emerge from the sea um, that match up to the four empires from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So there's a winged lion, which is pretty straightforward. If you look at old Babylonian architecture, the winged lion is a symbol of Babylon all the time. Then there's a great bear to represent the Medes and the Persians, a four-headed slash four-winged leopard to represent the Greeks. This is really interesting because after, so if you, if um, in history, right, Alexander the Great, he's in Macedonia and he basically just goes ham, uh, conquers everything, and then he dies in his mid-30s. So he dies very young. And after he dies... The empire is so massive, it really cannot be held together without someone of the charisma of Alexander doing so. So it actually divides up into four yep. kingdoms. Um, so the four-headed leopard represents kind of the four. It's a it's one great empire that divides into four. So it's kind of an interesting way of mm -hmm. looking at it. And then the final one is some type of an iron-toothed monster, which <laughs> re which matches up to Rome specifically yep. because the whole idea of the iron uh, feet of yeah. the statue, the iron and clay feet. Yep. So that's the idea. Um, eventually, this final beast would be defeated and the son of man, which is a, a, a name of the Messiah given in Daniel, mm -hmm. uh, and you'll notice Jesus likes that name as well, uh, would be given dominion of the earth. That's also an interesting point, just quick side note. When Jesus says son of man, I think a lot of times we think of it as being like he's referring to himself as human, which is part of it, but he's very much referencing these passages in Daniel yeah. where the son of man is, uh, he's not just a guy. Yeah. So Well, and you see the four beasts is also very comparable and correlating to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. 
that he's interpreting. Yes, that they, they go hand in hand. So this is where you see not just the prophetic literature overlapping, where they're not two separate accounts of uh, of, of history, if you will, but they, these are now the prophetic passages that will overlap the narrative passages. Right. So you see the overlap there with the two. There's two. also, um, I looked it up beforehand and the, the Hebrew words are different, so I don't want to stretch this too much, but I've been, um, the Bible Project's been doing a series really recently that I've been listening to about um, the creation myths of the other cultures around Israel at the time, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it was um, the Babylonian creation myth is that there's these chaos waters that have to be defeated in order for um, life to be essentially begin for creation to happen. Hmm. And they contrast it with the idea of you have this idea of the spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters, which are also kind of these chaos waters. Um, and so it's interesting to me that the, the image of these beasts coming out of the sea, I think it also kind of plays a little bit into this idea that God has dominion over the sea yeah. where the Babylonians might see that and interpret it as these beasts are coming out of just pure chaos. Yeah. Um, the Israelite would look at that and say like, they're coming out of the, the thing, which is also the dominion of God, which is yeah. kind of interesting. So, and you see that theme all throughout the Bible that um, the only reason the Babylonians were able to destroy Jerusalem is because God let them. Uh, and, and even uh, in Habakkuk, you get this whole idea of, and like he basically tells them, and don't worry, they're not going to be, they're not going to be around forever either. Like they're going to get punishment for what they do as well. So uh, the next one is the ram and the goat. Um, in the third year of Belshazzar, Daniel has another vision of a great ram. This one's really cool. Uh, with one horn slightly larger than the other. This would be the Medes and the Persians. Um, and you kind of get this idea that the Persians are the slightly more powerful um, of the pairing. And so you have this ram with like two great horns, but one of them is smaller than the other. Uh, and it's charging from east to west. And then Daniel sees a great goat with one horn rise in the west and charge east. Um, and so this is, well, we'll talk about what it is here in a second. So these two beasts meet, um, the ram is just crushed by the goat, um, and the goat would continue to grow essentially in power um, until eventually the one great horn would break and four smaller horns would come from this. And so again, you have this empire from the east charging west, which is exactly what the Medes and the Persians did. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other great empire from the west charging east, which is what Alexander did. <laughs> and then you have this greatness, it continues to grow. And then when the great horn is broken, which would be Alexander's death, four horns grow in its place, which would be the four kingdoms Kingdom, that arise. Yeah. yeah. So again, just like it's, it's pretty cool yeah. how spot on these prophecies are. All right, next one, the 77s, which is kind of an interesting, this one's a, this one's a little bit harder to interpret, I suppose. Um, but the prophecy, this prophecy is interesting because it's one of the rare examples of prophets actually mentioning each other. So Daniel says that um, he was thinking about the prophecies of Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. And he says that Jeremiah prophesied that it would have to be at least 70 years before the people of Israel could return. Um, and Daniel's like, hey, we're coming up on that. So it's just kind of it's just kind of a fun aside where usually with the prophetic books you see it a few times actually but you, it's very rare um, that you'll look at a prophetic book and they actually mention other prophets of the time. Uh, let me see here. So Daniel then launches into a confession of sin both for himself and for his people as they desire to be ready for the return. Uh, the angel Gabriel replies saying that there would be a period of seventy times seven uh, weeks, which is usually interpreted to mean 490 years. Um, so, and again, that's where they interpret it. It can get, cause you can actually take it to mean 490 weeks. Um, usually it's interpreted to mean 
uh, 490 years. What's interesting about this is the period of time between, so there's, it's, it's, we don't need to get super deep into it. Um, the final seven is kind of an apocalyptic in nature, mm-hmm. the return of Christ. So you kind of remove those a little bit. So if you take the 483 years from the year that we estimate that, um, I forgot the name of the king, but the king of Persia who allows um, Zerubbabel to go back and start rebuilding the temple. Um, oh, shoot, I can't remember either. Yeah, shoot. Um, anyway, I forgot to write it down. Sorry, sorry, dear listeners. But it's 444 BC, I believe is what it is. So if you if you go by the Jewish calendar from that date, and then you go 483 years, uh, you get 8032, which is right around when Christ dies. Um, so it's and the, the death and resurrection of Christ. So it's yeah. pretty interesting how that matches. It's so up. amazing. Yeah. So you get that whole idea. Uh, oh, I did write down Artaxerxes. Okay, we're good. <laughs> don't don't worry, dear listeners. I didn't let you down this time. Uh, so it matches up there really well. Uh, and also, it's just kind of this beautiful picture of Daniel preparing his people for the time to go back to Israel and saying basically, don't forget, um, don't forget why we're here. <laughs> like basically, let's not go back to Israel and just fall into the same traps that we did. And we talked about this during the intertestamental period um, episode as well. But the days of Israel struggling with polytheism are basically done now. Um, when they go back, you you really get almost no. I don't. I there might be one, so I don't want to put an absolute, but I don't think there's any references to the people of Israel struggling to worship other gods. They're basically coming back. They're building the temple. And then that's why the the Jewish culture of the New Testament is so different from the Jewish culture of the, we'll call it middle Old Testament, mm-hmm. because when, by the time Jesus is there, you don't hear anything about like, well, sometimes we like to worship Molech. Like they're just like, no, they worship God. That's what they do. Um, so you kind of get this idea that yeah. for the prophets, it was very important to them that like, hey, we're in this predicament because we did not worship God alone or we didn't worship him well. Let's make sure we don't do that again. Yeah. And then the final vision that we'll talk about today is just about Israel's future. Uh, it takes up the last few chapters, I believe it's chapter 10 through 12. Um, and so... This vision begins to tell uh, Israel both of its future and the future of the empires around Israel and even some visions of what will happen in the last days. So this is another one where the interpretations can kind of differ. Um, Some of these people think it points to um, the Greek king, I think it's Antiochus is how you pronounce it, uh, but the one who basically... Well, he didn't start the Maccabean revolt, but he's the one who is... his, His actions lead to... Uh, the Maccabees kind of doing their thing. So a, a particularly poor Greek king over Israel. Um, so this, uh, let's see here. Chapter 11 focuses mostly on the Greek empire's rise, division, and eventual fall. And then chapter 12 is a reminder of the final triumph of Yahweh, both in the messianic period and then in the last days as well. So there is this coming triumph of God that Daniel alludes to, but also the ultimate triumph of God, which is the thing that we as Christians still look forward yeah. to. And we know today um, it's not revealed to Daniel, but it's the the return of Christ mm-hmm. and then the new heaven and the new earth, all those things. So that's kind of, that's how it ends. So, yeah. And then you even told, I, you, you can repeat, I, I love how you <laughs> describe the way that the book of Daniel ends. Oh yeah. Bit, it was but, just, I mean, it's, and this is where you see, a lot of this, the 77s has a very strong connection to revelation and the the prophetic literature, the apocalyptic literature there of John. Um, but at the end of Daniel chapter 12, you read it. And if you kind of stop sometimes and read kind of what's going on, Daniel's conversation with this angel of the Lord, which 
um, scholars believe as well that that's also that's not just an angel, but it's actually Christ. Um, another Christophany in that moment, Daniel's talking to him saying, okay, well, what about that scroll? Because it gets the, in the, at the end of Daniel, it seals up. And, and Dan, Daniel's told, oh, don't worry about this. This doesn't concern your time. Uh, this is for a time still to come. And in essence, he's told the rest of your life, you're going to live in peace. You'll be fine. Don't sweat it. Go enjoy the rest of your life. And then he dies at an old age. He was 90 at one point. Right. Um, when some of these things were playing out. And so he was, he was mourning what was happening in Jerusalem, what was prophetically told going to be happening in Jerusalem. Um, and, and he couldn't go back when, when there was the, the will, uh, ability to go back under Artaxerxes, he couldn't go back in that time. Um, I think that's the, the right connection there. But anyways, all that to say, he's just told, don't worry about it. Like it's not for you to concern yourself with because it doesn't, it's not going to be in your lifetime. Right. And, and just wait. And then you see, I mean, if we were, I mean, we could tag revelation right at the end of this, if we wanted to, and put both books together and you see this direct handoff of the scroll that's sealed in Daniel is then the scroll that's then opened um, because Daniel 12, I believe alludes to there's only one person that can open it. And then you see this, this prophetic moment where uh, the son of man, the one shows up yep. who is then worthy to open the scroll. And he then carries on the, the continued apocalyptic reality, the, the bowls of wrath, uh, the seals being broken, things like that. So, um, but Daniel's like, no, you're done. Don't worry about it. We're, we're good. You've done enough. Yep. Uh, it's a go enjoy your life. <laughs> it's a surprise tool that'll help us later. Yeah. So. so you don't need to worry about it. So anyways. All righty. So with that being said, that wraps up our discussion on Daniel. Hope you liked it. A little bit more of a longer podcast. It's funny. It's today. a longer podcast, but it's only like a digest version. It's really Daniel, true. So. Daniel's thick. It's like Romans <laughs> where it's like, it's not super duper long, but it's just, it's just deep layered. Yeah. So, all right. So we're going to move on to our Q and a portion here. Uh, we'll do these really quick as well. Uh, but before we do, I just want to quickly remind everyone that we would love if you left a five-star review, uh, just helps get the podcast out there to more people and continue to grow this community of uh, people reading the Bible together. So please do that if you get a chance, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts is the one where it kind of helps us the most. So if that's where you listen, uh, just hit the five stars. We would really appreciate it. All right. So our first question today comes in through email and it says, hey, I have a question for Aaron and Evan on Let's Read the Bible. My question is on the book of Mark chapter one, verse 13. And he was in the wilderness, oh, this is quoting the verse, uh, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. What does it mean that Jesus was with the wild animals? I brought this up uh, in our discipleship group in the winter session with the book of Mark and we could not figure it out. Thanks. All right. So, this detail is kind of, we're just going to do rapid fire on this. Yeah, this yeah. detail is probably inserted to show a few things. Number one, that Jesus is very far away from civilization. Yeah. So it's the same way we would think of if I told you and I went camping and I saw um, a bear and wolves and elk, you would interpret that as being, oh, so you weren't near a city. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of, I think that's one of the reasons that the details put in there show that Jesus actually went into the the, the true wilderness. Um, number two, to show the danger of the situation and yet how Je demonstrate how Jesus is not afraid of, of creation. So there's wild beasts all around and it, they're not just all docile beasts. Like they're, mm -hmm. we know, uh, there's lions in the area, there's bears, there's all these different things. Um, but Jesus is not afraid of his creation. That's kind of how it works there. Um, third thing, I thought this was really interesting. I did not have time to back up this research, but I do trust that. So in the Reformation study Bible, which is a, it's a, a, a study Bible I trust yeah. the commentators. Um, but they cite this detail as a way of showing that Satan rules the untamed wilderness. 
um, which is kind of an interesting detail because we know that he is tempted by Satan. Mm-hmm. So um, again, I didn't really have the time to go through and find some backup knowledge for that because I'd never heard that before. Yeah. But it's like I said, it's from a commentary that I trust. Um, and so that's another, that's another interesting point. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think the pic, it shows, you know, the, the picture is simply like Jesus goes away from any kind of established order or civility. And he, he's in essence on the turf of the enemy um, full purpose. Like he was led into the wilderness. He was led to go face the enemy and, and endure the temptation of the enemy. And so it, it's, well, I don't have like, it's do, was he laying next to a line? Like we, we don't know those answers. Right. It's, but I think the picture right. is, is, is also to show the, the reality and the gravity of the situation where um, it's, you know, Satan is the one who's been given temporary dominion over the earth um, when he's cast down from heaven. And so there's that layer to it as well. So I think that there's that picture of Jesus showing up on the enemy's turf to endure the temptation of the enemy, where the enemy had the strongest opportunity to sway Christ um, and to, I guess to win the battle between him and Jesus. And it shows Jesus's sovereignty and his ability to stand firm. Yep. So that, right. that would be the simple answer, I think. There you be. All right. Question two, this one came out on Facebook and it says, I've read Romans six as part of the reading plan. I find the analogy of slave to sin a bit wonky as slavery implies that you're aware of it being oppressive. I almost feel like cult is a better word or really the matrix of sin. Yes. Uh, but that came out about 2000 Blue pill or red pill. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but that came out about 2000 years too late for Paul. Do you hear they're making a new one? New matrix. Really? Yeah. Matrix four. I don't yeah. know what to think about that. I don't know. Yeah. This thing. Is Keanu Reeves back in it? I I don't know. I just, I literally just old. saw, I literally just saw a headline the other day that was like, it's in development. Listen, I, it could have even been a joke. There's nothing new under the sun, bro. Like they you're have not, to reinvent some things. You're not wrong. Okay. So this is, this is an interesting question. Um, so I think the, the first thing to realize is that the, the context of slavery back then is different from the context of slavery that we think of today. Um, and so we think of slavery today as being purely oppressive, which in the modern Western sense, um, it really, uh, it really was. Yeah. And then even today in areas of the world where slavery persists, it, re- yes. it really is as well. Um, in ancient times, slavery was not necessarily that. It was really more of, um, I'm trying to think how to say it, basically a class of people, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, in the, in the modern West, we take it for granted that you're not really locked into a, um, a class of people, if that makes sense. So like, if you start off, like if you start off really low income, if you're raised in a family that doesn't have a lot of money, um, there's a lot of mobility to essentially rise up in the ranks. Yeah. And there's also not this idea of gen- not, genetics, the wrong word. There's not this idea of family nobility, particularly in the U S where there's not like, well, if you're born into the wrong family, you can never like now for the most part, like you can, like most of the rich people who we take for granted as being like the, the royalty of today, you will did not start off as being super wealthy people. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's, it's so just to kind of get us in the right headspace when it's talking about slaves, it's not talking about it, thinking through the language of oppression. What it's talking through is thinking of the language of who do you serve? Um, and so that's because I think it's really interesting that Paul presents the dichotomy of you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ, or in other words, your life is either about serving um, yourself and sinful desires, or it's about serving Christ. Those are kind of the two things. Mm-hmm. And so when he's using that, language, I think it actually does work really well because <clears throat> the choice that is offered is not this idea of you're in bondage and then you can break free from bondage. Although that that language is used other places, so I want to be careful. But the, in this particular instance, what Paul is saying is, are, who are you serving? Mm-hmm. It's, it reminds me of the Joshua 
passage of choose this day whom you will serve as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's kind of the similar thing here is people, you're either, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to Christ? And to, I think to kind of get the idea of slavery out of our head, because I think it, it can just be, it can make our minds go places that's not supposed to be. The I think the a, a great way to interpret it would be, is your master or is what your life is built around sin or is what your life is built around Jesus? And that's kind of how I would interpret it as mm-hmm. well. So, well, and I think, I mean, I think that there is, you know, a certain layer of oppression that we have to recognize when it comes to sin. Um, I don't, I think they're full. I think the thing about sin is it, it's, it is that fully awareness. Like we are fully aware of the, the brokenness and the reason why. And, and sometimes we're not just to be honest with you, like our human, our human condition right. really isn't always the most privy because we're selfish and prideful. We just think, Oh, well, it's okay. Something we can overcome. So I, th- I think when it comes to the picture of slavery to sin or a slavery to Christ, a slave to sin or slave to Christ, I think it is, it is meant for us to stop and ponder for a second. What, what is it actually revealing or alluding to in my own life? And, and we have to be careful to read the historical context of, of wording and definitions. Um, and we have to recognize the contextual realities going on when, when it was written. Um, but I think that the picture still of, of a slave one way or the other, like you were, you recognize you're not your own. You're, like you, you do whatever you're told because your master says to do it. Um, I do think there is that picture that has to exist in some respects in Christianity where we are obedient to what Jesus reveals in us, but there is, there is life and there is this, this beauty in submitting our lives to Christ um, and to his will and his purpose and glory. But there has to be a response of willingness to do it. Um, And, and I think that that's part of the tension. I feel it's almost a paradox where you, you don't experience true freedom until you submit to the will of God. Oh, absolutely. So, and, and it's kind of, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to, to explain, I suppose, but this idea of life lived the way that it's supposed to be at its most fulfilling and at its most freeing comes when we submit ourselves to Christ. Yeah. And, and I would say that sin is oppressive. I would say the negative connotation of slave exists in sin. When we live without the recognition of Christ, without the, su- the surrender to Jesus, like sin is oppressive. That's it, true. Yep. It, it mitigates and, and is the motivation behind every decision we make, every compromise we make it, rooted in sin is oppressive. Um, and I want to be careful not to be insensitive towards the co- modern day conversation in regards to oppression and the reality. But I think when it comes to sin, that there's a very real um, oppressive nature to it. And, and that's, and that's the, the, the flip side to, to the to being a slave to Christ is it's you're aligning your life and surrendering your life to me. And in that there's life and life abundance. So, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's meant to be a, a challenging thought provoking statement. Paul doesn't speak just flippantly or, or whimsically. He actually, he, the way he writes is a way that is, is, is meant to cause you to wrestle with the cultural understanding the contextual understanding of the time, but also um, the weight and the gravity uh, of the words being used, he uses very specifically. So, 
Yep. There you go. All right. Well, with that, it's going to wrap it up for our uh, super long <laughs> edition of Let's Read the Bible. Let's be honest. You guys missed us. There you go. Uh, but hopefully uh, you've been enjoying this podcast. We are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. If you go to our website, grove.church, you can find um, our archive of past messages, our archive of this podcast, as well as our Life and Then blog. Um, also, if you've been blessed by this podcast and you would like to contribute financially to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do so on our website, grove.church. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. We would really appreciate that as well. Well, with that being said, well, uh, that's it. That's yeah. it. We're, right. we're done. Have a great day, guys. <laughs> we will. Thanks for tuning in. We'll See, talk we'll, at you next yeah, week. Yeah, we'll talk at you next week. That's the best way to say it. <laughs>